Well, welcome to Melbourne and Happy New Year. It's 38 degrees Celsius. I'm Peter Mercado and this is the ATP podcast. Hope you had a great festive season and are ready to welcome the new year. I am here at Melbourne Park where it's the calm before the storm, really. I'm uh, here in Garden Square, the famous Garden Square. You've seen the images of Melbourne Park from over the years at the back of Rod Laver Arena. And it's looking fantastic, the site. And in a couple of weeks' time, there will be thousands of people right where I'm sitting now milling their way through and uh, enjoying the first major of the year. There's been plenty happening at the site over the, the past 12 months. There is a brand new show court, 5,000 seats, which is in operation for the tournament this year. There's a few other things that have been set up around the grounds as well. If you are heading to Melbourne Park to experience it, yeah, it'll be a different experience, a good experience, and we're looking forward to welcoming the world here after what's been another tough year in 2021. But we're looking forward to 2022, and as tradition dictates, we start off in Australia, and that's why I'm hosting the podcast for the next couple of weeks as we work our way through the Australian summer Throughout uh, the coming month, I'll be joined by Chris Bowers and Jill Krabus as we work our way through, right through to the end of the Australian Open and the Australian Swing, which will end at the end of the month. And it will be an interesting ride over the uh, next couple of weeks as well. Things are coming together nicely. Of course, the spectre of COVID is in the background. We've already had players testing positive to COVID prior to arriving in Australia and also upon arrival in Australia. Players like Rafael Nadal, who is here in Melbourne and has been hitting at Melbourne Park uh, over the past couple of days. Uh, Denis Shapovalov, Andrei Rublev, uh, of course, pulling out of the ATP Cup team, amongst others, have had uh, COVID, but they should be right for the Australian Open in a couple of weeks' time. There is plenty of news, of course, happening, and you can keep right up to date, atptour.com, for all the latest news. But, of course, the big uh, talking point around Australia, around the world, really, is will Novak Djokovic make his way to Melbourne for the Australian Open? He's pulled out of the ATP Cup team, Serbia's ATP Cup team, uh, and he did that on the eve of the tournament. And I guess we'll know in the coming days as to whether he will be coming to Australia and coming to Melbourne for the Australian Open. Dominic Team, also another one who's not making it to Australia. He's going to start his season a little bit later in February. He feels he's not quite at 100% to get out there and play at the moment. He's had a long injury layoff and we wish him well. Of course, we're not going to see Roger Federer, Milos Ranić, another player who's not coming to Australia this year, and also Stan Wawrinka. But we're going to focus on the players who are here, and there's plenty happening there too. We've got the ATP Cup, which is underway in Sydney. Two venues in Sydney and uh, the usual four groups, A, B, C and D. And what a lineup it is. In Group A, we've got Serbia, Norway, Chile and Spain. In Group B, we've got Russia, Italy, France and Australia. Group C has got Germany, Canada, Great Britain and the USA. And Group D has Argentina, Greece, Poland and Georgia. And there's a host of big names of playing in the ATP Cup uh, for 2022. Daniel Medvedev leading off Russia. What a season the Russians had uh, in 2021. Sasha Zverev will be leading Team Germany. Stefanos Tsitsipas for Greece. Great Britain, great to see Cam Norrie and Dan Evans. They had particularly good 2021s being rewarded with a spot in the ATP Cup. Diego Schwartzman uh, is leading the way for Argentina. Particularly strong team for Italy. We've got Matteo Berrettini, Yannick Sinner leading off there. Fabio Fanini also in that lineup. Kasper Ruud, of course, for Norway. Uh, Hubert Herkash for 
Poland, we've got uh, the Australians led by Alex Dimonor, and France who have come into the lineup replacing Austria. There have been a few changes to the ATP Cup lineup due to players withdrawing, but still a very, very strong field, and that will be played in Sydney throughout this week. It's not the only tournament that's happening uh, across Australia in week one of the season. There's also 250 events happening in Adelaide, and right here at Melbourne Park, uh, the summer set is happening uh, similar to what happened last year but there's great fields for both of those and leading the way in the field for the ATP 250 in Adelaide Gail Monfils will be the top seed there Karen Hutchinov, Maran Cilic uh, will be here, Francis Tiafo will be playing in Adelaide, Martin Fucevic uh, a strong lineup there for that 250 to lead off the season and then of course the summer set in Melbourne Rafael Nadal is the big draw card there, he will be top seed He's made it to Melbourne safely. He's been practising here at Melbourne Park over the past couple of days and he's looking forward to another big Australian campaign. Riley Apelka, Grigor Dimitrov, David Goffan, uh, they will also be lining up too. So pretty strong lineups for the 250s, but of course the focus is on the ATP Cup. Plenty happening, of course, the week after that. There'll be another series of tournaments, another tournament uh, 250 happening in Adelaide. There'll also be an ATP event in Sydney following the ATP Cup. So uh, a couple of tournaments in uh, interstate uh, capitals, only in Adelaide and Sydney, as well as here in Melbourne. Of course, in Melbourne, in the coming weeks, we'll have the Australian Open qualifying, which will be over five days in 2022. And then, of course, the Australian Open. There's a whole host of other events. There's Challenger events happening uh, around uh, the state of Victoria here in Australia. Uh, there's also ITF events, uh, all sorts of things that are, are going on uh, as the players prepare for the Australian Open. Of course, trying to keep them as close to Melbourne as possible. And uh, COVID protocols uh, are in place here at Melbourne Park and across all the tournaments during the Australian summer. So there's plenty to look forward to. We'll have the wrap-up of all the Week 1 events in our next podcast coming up next week. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Now, as I've already mentioned here on the ATP Podcast, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be joined by Chris Bowers and also Jill Krabus, who will join me for our next podcast. But in the meantime, I've probably been enjoying the festive season. I know I have, uh, but there's been plenty of excess. And fair enough, after the 2021 we've all experienced. But what about working off that festive excess? Jill's been speaking to a former player and now one of the leading strength and conditioning coaches on tour, Wolfgang Oswald, about all things fitness and nutrition. played college tennis. I wanted to be involved in the medical field, and but still in tennis. And so I liked anatomy and it seemed like being a physio was, was the right field. And, uh, and then I could kind of marry the two eventually. So that's how... Yeah, I, I mean, I heard you're a tennis fanatic. I've heard that quite tennis a bit. Tennis junkie. Yes, yes. On, the, on some podcasts that you did. Right now, you're currently a physio, and you do some strength and conditioning for a yes. lot of the American players. Yes. Taylor, Riley Opelka, Tommy Paul, Mackie McDonald. Yes. But you were kind of thrown in. Um, you were telling me a story that you were kind of just on a plane to Asia, and that's how you met Taylor and Dave Nankin for the first time. So my question is, how, not knowing them, how do you approach and assess a professional athlete to know how to train them, to treat them, without knowing them? That's a very good question. It's less than ideal. Ideally, I would have someone for a couple of days at my clinic and go through a full gamut of testing, um, assessments on weaknesses, strengths, and then you can design a program. 
a lot of people on the on the tennis tour that know strength and conditioning or, or physio know it's less than ideal because you're kind of trying to patch things together because you don't have big gaps. It's difficult to throw in strength and conditioning because maybe you're winning matches and you don't want to be fatigued. So you kind of piecemeal it together and you assess slowly as the week goes on. You can't do the ideal assessment. And then you get to know the player over a long period of time. So... I do a lot of filming of biomechanics and you assess their movement and then over time you can start to address dysfunctions and things like that. So it is difficult on tour. You have to try to find time. But then when you get a week where maybe you lose early, uh, then you can have the rest of the week to do more training or do more assessment and you kind of get to know the players more over a long period of time versus a quick assessment. So can you give us an example of, um, you know, when you are in your clinic, what the assessment process would look like? Yeah, so we follow, in the medical field, we follow what's called a SOAP note, S-O-A-P. So it's subjective, so you do an interview. Um, if you're with a pro athlete, you might also interview the coach and what they want or deficits that they may see. Um, the O stands for objective, so that's when you do an assessment. Physical, things you can measure. So you do, you test muscle strength, muscle length. Uh, you do a battery of standardized testing, jumping, hop tests, uh, you can do max lift tests, um, squatting, deadlifting, that kind of thing. Uh, the A in SOAP note is, is assessment. So you make your professional opinion, your assessment. These are the deficits I see. If we correct this, we may improve movement or this dysfunction, this injury, this pain that you may have. And then the P is the plan. So you discuss with the coach and, and, the, and the athlete what might be the plan going forward. So, so a, a, for me, the subjective interview could be anywhere from... 20 minutes to 30 minutes sometimes trying to really learn the player uh, or the athlete and then the the assessment can take an hour if you're with a pro athlete because you're not just testing okay they have let's say a, a regular patient may have tennis elbow and you're just assessing the elbow and the shoulder and the neck you're looking at especially with tennis it's full body you can't leave anything out it's from the big toe joint through the ankle, <laughs> through the knee, through the hip, the spine, you do a lot of rotation. And so it takes a really long time to do it thoroughly. And then from there, you can design a program, whether it be prehab, rehab, and, and then you go forward. And obviously, it's, it's a little different if you're just, if they're not injured and have no deficits and it's just performance enhancing. Right. Because sometimes you have those athletes. It's interesting because you said the whole body in tennis. I remember also listening to you saying it's it's one of the few sports that is a whole body maybe in other sports compared to like a running back or line I remember you saying that about specific positions yes but as far as like because tennis players do have different strengths so for someone like you're working with uh, Taylor Fritz for example or Riley Opelka that have big serves is that would you focus primarily on a strength of theirs and go from there or you consistently just do the whole body that's a good question so yes so they even though they're both tall, they actually have two very different body types. Um, one player is, is lacking mobility. The other player has too much mobility. So you do treat them differently. But for sure, you would treat their game styles differently. Right. So I wouldn't have Riley do the same strength and conditioning uh, or even prehab things as, say, Mackie because they play points very differently. You know, So the cardiovascular stuff, the threshold stuff his points are very 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 short yeah so you're working a little bit different so yeah it's it's so how different like how would that be different like let's take Riley and well I mean not I probably don't want to do specific players but someone that plays longer baseline rallies and someone with short points like how how would you go about that differently so some of it is um 
volume or, or time on court. The bigger guys, if they spend too much time on court, can pick up little nagging injuries. So you're trying to keep them as fresh as possible, but you still need enough volume to mimic, say, a slam match, best of five. You still, you don't want that slam match to be the longest hit they've had all year, right? Right. And then a younger, or sorry, a, 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 a shorter, really fast athlete that plays longer points that doesn't have the luxury of hitting aces, let's say like Riley or, or Taylor, um, you're going to do maybe drills on court differently where you can build in fitness on court, side-to-side drills, things like that. Uh, but same with strength conditioning. Um, you would throw in um, longer bouts of certain exercises when they're doing cardio or assault bike and, and things like that. So it, it does take two different directions. But there's some things that everyone has to do, like, say, I call it a pitch count for serving. You need a certain amount of serving volume to mimic what you're going to do during a tournament. For, like, how yeah. much would you need, do you, do you think? So I think that's really specific to the player right. so, so a big server a cert, let's call them a serve bot yeah right so they play a lot of seven five seven six sets right yeah so really you just learn your athlete you track them so for let's say some of the serve bots we've tracked their serving for a week-long tournament somewhere between 700 serves ish and that's including 700 service service in a in, week in a week so that's okay. including that's including their Usually, if they have a day off, they're playing a practice set. Okay. That's including warm-up. Okay. Every time they roll the arm over, you, you, you tabulate it, right? Okay. And so, with some of the serve bots, in a week-long tournament, it's about 700. Okay. In a slam, it's about 1,000. Okay. And that's without doubles. So, once you have those numbers, then you look at your training weeks, and you try to at least keep some similarity in volume or you work up to that volume and I know a lot of athletes that may say well I start to have shoulder issues later on in an event but if you look at their serving volume maybe it's not as high when it needs to be in their off season or their off weeks so like Um, so an off season for a week would you try and get to that thousand number or would you go higher that because it's you have a longer training period that's where tennis isn't ideal because you may be winning a lot Let's say you go th- deep in three right, tournaments in right. a row, then you kind of want that one week off, you want it to be more recovery. So you're right. actually not working on volume that week. But if you've lost, say, first round in a few events, and then you have a week off, now that's when you, where you want to okay. ramp up your serve volume leading into some other events. Okay. So it's really specific. Now, if you have an ideal world, right, you would do three weeks of higher volume, one week of recovery, a lot less mm. volume, and then you ramp up again. So ideally, you look at maybe your 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 most important events, your slams, and then you backtrack from there. Okay. And you want to have maybe that last week. So you're trying week. to peak at the slams. Exactly. You're trying to okay. reduce the volume that week before a slam to have, to be fresh. So ideally, the three weeks before that, you're working up to very similar to slam volume, yeah. so 1,000 serves a week. So you must have a booklet of numbers. I like keep a non- lot of notes. Non-stop numbers yes, for each I, player. Yes, I keep a lot of notes. Okay. So is this something that you are also incorporating in other strokes like forehand backhand movement like transitioning forward and backward or not necessarily not so much as tabulating stats on that but the uh, USTA does a really good job of giving us data on how much they move during a point okay um and and distances run so then we can kind of look at kind of volume on court 
right? So, um, and, and strength and conditioning, we kind of marry the two because mm. it's still volume, right? Mm. If you're off the tennis court, but you're doing a lot of strength and conditioning, that's still volume on your body. Mm. So then you kind of, we kind of look at more distances run and how many, the speed at that. Because some tennis movement, if you're just going cross-court rally balls, it's not really a ballistic explosive movement. It's just a side shuffle, turn and hit. Mm. But if you're running side to side and it's high velocity, then you try to get a similar number in training as you would during a match. Mm-hmm. Because if, you're, if your match volume is 25% higher than training, you're going to end up being sore, mm. fatigued, um, if your training volume is 25% higher than your match volume, you're going to finish a match pretty fresh because mm-hmm. you're, you're doing less than what right. you used to, right? right? So you try to get that to be a sweet spot. What about players that don't have issue with that? Say that, I mean, there are, a lot, there are some players on the tour that I can think of that basically can last 20 hours and they're fine. Like fitness is not an issue. Um, I'm think like immediately thinking of Cam Nori. <laughs> like he can, he can last forever, of like course. hours on and end. And he works hard on his fitness. Yeah. Um, um, as far as like if someone like that that can maybe over maybe sometimes like I, mean, I don't think he overtrains, but he does a lot. Would you focus more on recovery for an athlete like that, or what? What would be the focus? Absolutely. Then? So if you've reached a des- desired level of fitness and it's not an issue at that point. Now you're trying to make sure you're kind of crossing your T's and dotting your I's. Make sure there's no imbalances so your prehab is really good, so no nagging injuries come into play. So what does prehab entail? Prehab, so if it's a continuum, you've got rehab, so something's injured, so you can't really push it too hard because there's pain restriction, right? And then then you kind of progress into prehab where there's no pain restricting you, but maybe there's a limitation, there's a restriction in shoulder internal rotation which may affect you serving or there's a weakness in your rotator cuff where that goes into the assessment that I talked about earlier. Hey, you have uh, muscular endurance deficits in your rotator cuff. If you go deep into a slam, your shoulder may start to bug you. So let's make sure we work on strengthening this so in the future it doesn't become an issue. Mm-hmm. And nothing's foolproof. You're just trying to minimize your risk right. of injury. So, so that's the prehab, and then you've got something where you can't find a deficit, but you're trying to maximize that. So you're working on explosive movement, say, to make your movement faster. You, your endurance is good based on your training volume. Mm. Like, let, let's talk Cam, because he's, he's pretty fit. Um, he doesn't need to work maybe more on fitness from an endurance standpoint, maybe maintain what he has, but then maybe you work on... Um, some things to maybe make his movement a little bit better or uh, first step a little quicker or and I know his uh, strength and conditioning team and, and they all work on that right yeah. and so then it's more about fine tuning yeah um, so it's yeah that's why it's so very player specific yeah right? you need to really get to know your player and sometimes it's hard in a short period of time to really get to know them you need to watch a lot of their matches where do they maybe have some restrictions or have some limitations that you can work on. What are, what are some examples of some explosive work that you would do? Because tennis is very explosive, side to side, and digging in and changing direction. Absolutely. So, so plyometrics. So there's various forms of plyometrics. Tennis players beat their bodies up, though, too. So sometimes you have to be careful with kind of how much volume in plyometrics. Um, 
the plyometrics that we know work that have extremely good results even in elite trained athletes a six-week program of plyometrics can improve your agility testing by like eight percent like who wouldn't want to be five percent faster on the core right but there's an inherent risk there too so maybe instead of jumping off of a box and then jumping up high which is a typical plyometric movement maybe you're jumping from the floor to a box where the impact isn't as high okay if that makes sense yes. right yeah and same thing with maybe strength and conditioning maybe you're doing a salt bike or versa climber uh, for your threshold work your high intensity like your hit type stuff because you're able to get the cardiovascular benefit and the muscular endurance benefit without the compression and the pounding of on the versa climber exactly yeah. v- versus doing court sprints not that that's not important that's extremely important but sometimes you need to take that into consideration too mm. you want to get the volume in but you don't want to injure them or fatigue them so but plyometrics is a good one and and honestly some of the research shows on court conditioning is some of the best so if that's a, des- a design drill by a coach you know, and that's why it's good to mimic the same movement. Exactly. But, and that's yeah. why it's important to have good communication between the strength and conditioning, physio staff and the coaches. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you can say, I would like to add more of this. And then the coach designs a drill where it could be two on ones where you're going for a desired set time. Uh, you're just running side to side, recovery, go again, side to side, recovery, go again. I like to videotape. So if there's a movement pattern that's maybe not ideal or less um, efficient, then you can go about retraining that movement pattern in the gym with drills the player needs to see it with their eyes you know on video because then they get it and then you try to make that movement automatic by doing drills Mm. that kind of mimic that movement pattern and that's how maybe they can become a step quicker half a step quicker quarter step quicker because at this level small margins can be a big improvement in performance so you found that that the video has been super beneficial when the players have seen it huge yeah yeah. you just feel like they retain the information better yes i could talk till forever and it may go over their head but if they can actually visually see it but that's every patient that i've ever had i used to do a lot of run gate mechanics and um you may explain it but they're not fully understanding but if they can visually see it like now I know what you mean. Were your video of them running? Yes. And how they're impacting exactly. the ground? And exactly. Like and tennis isn't linear, so it's more complex. Yeah. So I think Mark Kovacs has done a really good job. I think he's, I, I don't quote me on this, but there's some, something about 20 to 30 repeatable movement patterns that we see on a tennis court. Really? Yeah. Okay. So like like a defensive step where you're kind of turning and moving back. Right. There's a loading step. There's a crossover step. There's a crossover step the other way. There's a run around forehand. Uh, there's hitting out of the corners and like a mogul step. So there's many, many different steps that we see in a repeat fashion in tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people don't do some of those steps maybe the most efficient way or or correctly. So so if you find a player that maybe is only doing, have you found a player that's maybe only doing like 12 to 15 of those steps and so you're going to try incorporating into the full 30? I know that's just kind of a number. Yes, but, maybe. Okay. Yes, maybe. Or they're doing those movements but maybe not with as big of a step. Okay. Or tennis is now about big explosive steps, not a lot of little not ones. Not the little ones, yeah. And so maybe they're doing that less than ideally or they're not low enough so they have to drop their body to move laterally versus like Grigor is a great example and Fed they're both very wide stance and low so when they have to change direction they're already low now they can explode out of that position well I was just going to ask you why that big step is so much more beneficial do you think than the little ones you just cover more ground in less time but you need the strength 
in that joint position to be able to do it. So if somebody isn't explosive out of a low lunge or a low squat, it's difficult to teach them that movement pattern. Or they're really good at it, but they can't do it for more than 20 times. Well, in a match, you've got to do it for hundreds of times. And the ATP keeps good stats. I think there's an average best of three matches, two to three... Uh, three to five hundred changes of direction in a match mm. that's a lot that's that not a lot. slam match mm. those are some other numbers you can use in your yeah. strength and conditioning right we need to do this 300 times yeah. right so so i just think it teaches us a lot when we're able to, to slow things down and look at it and and you try to compare when you're doing motion analysis or video you're trying to compare what the best movers are doing there's something that they're doing right mm. yeah that's why they're good movers and they're genetically gifted they have fast twitch muscle fibers um so yeah i was going to ask so the best that you've seen the best movers on the tour you've noticed that the the wider step yes is crucial for covering more ground what about balance i'm assuming that helps balance Balance. their first two steps are, are really fast really fast and very efficient um so that's one of the things they're kind of light lighter on their feet maybe um and they're you have to slow it down on video to see it, but but now even like your phone can do 240 frames a second. You can kind of see how many frames they are ahead in the same step mm. as a, as another athlete. So it's really good information yeah. you can gather from that. So that's interesting. Yeah. And what what about does anything change for you as far as that training when when players are going to different surfaces from like a hard to a grass to a clay? Does that change for you at all? It's pretty much the same concept that your approach. Similar concepts, but maybe you focus a little bit more on some of the prehab stuff. So with sliding on clay, adductors or the groin muscles tend to take a bit of a beating, right? Because you're kind of going into a splits type movement and same on grass, maybe inadvertently on grass, but you still need to be able to stabilize like your inner thigh as the legs slip and go out to the side. So it does change. And we see that when people transition surfaces, you see little nagging things come up. Oh, my groins are feeling really tight or, or I'm sore there because they are sliding and maybe they didn't come into that doing it enough. And that's how kind of I've learned through my players. Now we focus on that stuff mm. before the clay court season and then mm. you don't have as many adductor issues, yeah. right? Um, and then grass, you feel your quads because you're just trying to stay low and you got to take those short little deceleration steps. And then why are my quads so fatigued? Mm. They just came from clay because mm. you're moving very different. So you do try to take that into account. And then incorporate that in your yeah. in your SNC or your prehab or whatnot. And and I'm I'm inter- I'm interested to hear what you said because I know you've we spoke yesterday for a little bit and I know you talked about that you did a lot of work with cyclists as well and now in tennis obviously very different sports on how you would train are are there certain things I'm thinking more preventative that yep. you've noticed about tennis players overall because you've been on you've been working now for four and a half years on the tennis on, right on tour yes full yeah, on time tour. yes i worked with tennis players before that but not full time yeah so i think like what has stood out to you as far as like what maybe injuries are consistent throughout tennis player compared to the other sports like a cycling that that you've found and do you do any preventative stuff to prevent those injuries from happening before sure absolutely there's there's a, a a few highlighted body regions that just seem to take a lot of stress. There is some very good data on injury rates per age group, actually, and it actually changes. Okay, as that's interesting. As a kid goes through maturity, certain muscles may not be as strong. Maybe they're growing really fast and they're really tall. Like and they what don't muscles, have the, would you say? Let's say... Um, hip muscles aren't as strong, so you'll see the younger kids knock-kneed a little bit. 
when they serve, they get knock kneed and then they have knee issues because they don't have the hip strength or the hip muscle mass to control their okay. knee position. Uh, whereas in the pros, you tend not to see that that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely uh, ankle strength. Now with everyone sliding from a very young age, they've kind of inadvertently strengthened their ankles. So we actually don't do a lot like of ankles. Like even playing on hardcore, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you don't see many ankle sprains. If you think about it, when was the last time you saw an ankle sprain yeah, in tennis? True. It's a kind of yeah. a rarer thing. Yeah. But in junior tennis, it's kind of a little bit more prevalent. But the knees, for sure, mm. they do a lot of deceleration of these big explosive movements. If you look at on the men's pro tour, maybe the women a little less angled, but when they serve, they're almost at a 90-degree bend in their knee. Mm-hmm. And if you're talking serve volume, that's thousands of squats yeah. you know, per week. Um, and so the knees, and that's why almost every tennis player has really good quad development. If you look at tennis so players, they have strong legs, yeah. very well-built, hips yeah. right and glutes um, and and quads so so the knee the knees are important because they tend to take a lot of pounding the patella tendon or jumper's knee um, um, so that's something you want to be really on top of the hips drive everything they control knee position leg position they stabilize the lower back so the hips are so crucial mm-hmm. um, which tennis strengthens the hips because you're doing lateral movement and you're in squat positions and you're lunging so by default you're going to be strong there but you still need to make sure there's no deficits there so do you realize strengthening around the hip area yes absolutely yeah that's the main focus absolutely and what yeah and what what exactly would i mean if you don't no 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 no, no, that's that's a very good question so the body moves in three planes we move forward and back we move side to side and then we rotate and there's muscles in most of our body that move in those three planes but maybe they're biased in one but the hip needs to be strong in all those planes so think about most tennis strokes require a lot of rotational mm-hmm. power that's a lot coming from from the hips and the and and, and the legs right um uh side to side movement that means your your side hips kind of have to be strong right um and then to accelerate forward for a drop shot the glutes the glute max mm-hmm. has to be really strong mm-hmm. so so you can't leave any of those undone so if you think inner outer hip posterior hip front of the hip uh, you have to address all of them Mm. right so um that's a key component of prehab and and performance enhancing is a lot of glute work and because that's kind of the foundation for your lower back it helps the lower back and we see a lot of injuries Mm. in lower backs we're we're not necessarily designed to bend backwards when we serve a lot so we see a lot of back injuries Mm. especially in younger kids from just serving just we're in an extended and rotated position but you have to kind of extend no you have to in tennis right but But it's it's not a a necessarily a natural movement for us to do as humans in a repeated way oh right just the same as pitching isn't natural so you got to really do a good job of taking care of those joints that get maybe overstressed so the back is a huge issue at probably any age to keep strong flexible in all planes not just one somebody could have really good hamstring flexibility but really poor quad flexibility mm-hmm. that's going to put stress on on mm-hmm. a body part right yeah so the back for sure and then obviously the shoulder but complex. to protect that back is the hips strength strength both, both the, the back but the hips let's okay. say you had let's say you had the strongest most flexible spine but really weak hips yeah you could end up having yeah. a lot of back pain yeah and so that comes into that full assessment of addressing okay. everything in the body were our deficits you yeah. know um, a good example i heard or, or an analogy 
uh, those those cell phone towers, right? They're really, really tall, and then they got cables going down mm-hmm. in all different directions. Yeah. Imagine if you have one of those two cables cut. Mm. The line of pull right. isn't balanced, and now you have this structure that's not necessarily right. balanced. So um, you want to, and that's, you know, with cycling, like you brought up that example, cycling you go straight forward, mm. and that's it. And so you don't need to do as much of the other stuff. But tennis is so all-encompassing. Every plane of movement, lunging, squatting, reaching, stretching. And so you really have to have pretty good balance throughout the whole body, which takes longer. It does, yeah. The prehab takes longer. The warm-ups take longer. If I was warming up a cyclist, boy, that's super easy, right? (laughs) But but a tennis player, it's head to toe. I know. I mean, I've always loved tennis. You're making it sound even more super cool. <laughs> I just want to touch on one. You mentioned sliding because I, yes. I've talked with a couple of people that, you know, they get worried about the sliding on the hard court because injury. But you're, you feel like it strengthens the ankles to a certain degree. Yeah. Yeah. Do by you default. Find it might be a little dangerous at the same time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I cringe sometimes. You yeah. Know? Um, my players do it really well. Um, you know, the, the serve bots are probably too tall, but they still slide, yeah. you know? Um, and so it's really important to address those other areas that are going to stabilize the knee uh, or good good groin and hip flexibility so when you are sliding into that splits, you're not going to pull something. Um, but the opposite of that is sometimes I see it as laziness in juniors. Instead uh, okay. of taking a few deceleration steps, they just stick their leg out and slide. Or the point's over, they're already running out that way, the ball's slightly out, and they'll slide and stop the ball. Like Maybe that's undue stress on the body because that's accumulative stress. Mm. So this generation hasn't gotten to 50 years old yet, the, the, the sliding generation. Um, that's true. That's a good right? point. And if you look at some of the, the biggest serve and volleyers back in the day, like, like Boris Becker's had two hip replacement, and he's relatively right. young to have a hip replacement. So where are these kids going to be when they're 50, mm-hmm. 60? We don't know. So you wouldn't necessarily advocate it. No, but there are times where it makes tennis movement more efficient. Yeah. And there are balls that maybe we didn't get to in the past that now we get to. Mm-hmm. Like you'll see a drop shot and they'll sprint up and slide from right. eight feet away and get that. In old days, maybe we don't make that. Maybe we don't slide and, and we can't get to that ball. Yeah. So it's definitely made tennis movement. Um, and it's kind of a, a necessity. The game got bigger and faster. So people have had to change how they move. Mm. So we're all still learning on the fly, kind of. Mm, yeah. But we do know there's certain areas of the body that get stressed more, and we have to, we have to work on that. Yeah. So. Um, and what about as far as, like, your physio role? I mean, I think it's awesome you guys communicate, and you have experience in strength and conditioning. But as far as recovery, um, maybe after a tournament or after even a Grand Slam, a long two weeks... What is the most important thing for you to get that player to recover as quickly as possible? Because recovery is such a huge deal now. There's, there's, I could talk about this topic for hours. There's, <laughs> there's definitely a lot of fads and there's a lot of things in the industry that gets marketed a lot. Okay. And they help, but sometimes the, the simplest things are the, the best things. So I read a lot of research and the research really shows if you want the best thing for recovery... You would spin on the bike and just flush get the that legs. Lactic acid yeah. Out, yeah. You would eat really well. Make sure you get your protein intake. And sometimes is it something they have to eat something right away, like within a period of time? Not necessarily right away, but somewhat soon. Like and within. Then, and 
within two, three hours, your okay. protein synthesis is heightened at that time, and that's when your muscles are starting to rebuild. So you want that protein because that's the building block for your muscles. But more importantly, that 24-hour cycle, you want to get your ideal amount of protein in for that 24-hour cycle. And it's, well, for an athlete, maybe uh, 0.7 grams per pound of body weight. Okay. All the way up to one gram. So for a guy like Riley, who's 230 pounds, even if he has three steaks a day, that's still only 90 grams of protein. Oh my gosh! So he's got to get another hundred in. So that's two to three protein shakes a day. Oh, protein protein shakes, shakes. right? And so, so the 24-hour cycle is important. Obviously, hydration um, in that time, uh, and then sleep. Your, your growth hormones are peaked um, during the later hours of sleep and, and so trying to get eight hours, you know, sometimes 10 if you played a five-setter. So those are the most important. That's what the evidence shows, right? But you can supplement that with, say, the compression boots because you're pumping out some of that lactic acid and mm. maybe that... Uh, slows down the healing process. You, um, they have a, f- a famous study in cycling where they compared different recovery methods, and they found that just spinning on the bike very lightly was kind of one of the better ones. And um, it doesn't matter how long, or just I think it was like a 15-minute spin, but okay. under 100 watts, which feels like almost no resistance, right? Right. Would you um, even have a cyclist do that? That's been spinning all day. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Actually, so now in the Tour de France, they have trainers set up. So when they actually finish the stage, they get on the trainer and just flush the legs out. Oh it's really gosh. But that's, that's what the science is showing, right? Right, right. Um, like, I just did this all day. Right. <laughs> and so, and then obviously we do so... As a physio, we do soft tissue mobilization, so we may have instruments or tools that we use, and then our hands, um, stretching... Um, and it really is maybe athlete dependent on what you're focusing on, but the legs are always because you're moving in tennis, yeah. right? So that's a big part of recovery and the rotator cuff for yeah. serving. Um, so yeah, and then there's you know different tools that you'll see marketed on the social media, and they all help. And look, we're we're in a we're at the the creme de la creme of tennis. So if you're a quarter percent better. If you're doing something that's only a quarter percent, right? I call it's it mar- massive. I call it marginal gains. If you're doing ten things at a quarter percent, yeah. that may mean the difference of winning and losing. Yeah. So some of these matches come down to three point, two points. I one know. Point. So yeah. so if doing this one thing doesn't have necessarily scientific research that's beneficial, but you know it's not negative, you throw it in there, right? Because maybe you're giving them. You know, even if it's a psychological boost of, hey, I'm I'm fresher. But really, from a scientific standpoint, like the really the the, the cornerstones of nutrition and sleep and, and that kind of Would stuff. Would you use like a sleep tracker? You know yes, those are important. These... So the, so yeah. the wearables are very important yeah. because obviously we can track um, heart rate right during a training session. We talked earlier about some of the cardiovascular stuff, uh, training wise, um, sleep for sure, recovery. So now a lot of these uh, wearables will track your sleep score and how fresh you are. There's heart rate variability, which mm-hmm. actually tells you how yeah. recovered your nervous system is. And uh, somebody that's really fit um, will. They'll show fatigue the day after a slam or a slam match. And then by the next day, they're almost back to baseline, which is really, really Mm. cool. Whereas another athlete might see a decline as the week goes on. They're actually fatiguing as the week goes on. So that then helps us plan the strength and conditioning for the next slam. Whereas we need to bump your fitness levels up so you're not as fatigued. So Mm. a lot of recovery is 
how well you're conditioned beforehand. Yeah. Like I said earlier, if your volume in matches is 25% higher than your training, you're going to need more recovery, mm-hmm. but that's because your fitness wasn't up to par. Right. If your fitness is super high and your matches are less volume, you need less recovery because you don't feel fatigued because right. you're used to it. Right. Right. So the body is an amazing thing and it'll adapt to the stresses placed on right. it. As long as those stresses are placed on it in a very gradual manner, people mm-hmm. don't realize how long it takes for the body to adapt. But yeah, we can adapt over time. What, what, what's your opinion on like yoga? Because I know that puts you in different positions. You were talking about the back. I'm thinking about the serve in particular. And yoga puts you in like... Yes. Are you, do you like those yes, positions? Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and there's a lot of good positions that mimic um, positions of the spine in serving. So my thing with any mode of exercise is it um, specific to your imbalances. So I do have a bit of a pet peeve where let's say if I'm flexible... I tend to like things that use my flexibility, mm. but that may not be the best thing for me. So if I'm hyper-flexible and I do a lot of yoga, I'm just feeding into that hyper-flexibility, that hyper-flexible person needs to work more on stability and strength. But if, if I have someone that's tight all over, they need to focus more on yoga. So it's very specific and that's why getting an individual assessment yeah, right? is important. Yeah, exactly. Because I was like, how would you know that? I mean, how would some people know that? I think athletes are very body aware in yes. general, but yes. how would like the average person because know Because I was in, in, in a clinical practice for almost 20 years, and the amount of uh, yoga instructors that I treated that I had to tell, do not do stretching for this week. I just want you doing strengthening, and they felt better. Mm-hmm. They just feel like they need to stretch more when they're already so hyper-flexible that they didn't have the stability to control a joint. So that would be very, to answer your question, it's very player specific. Uh, but there's intangibles with you. You're breathing, you're learning to relax. So some of that stuff is, yeah. is really good too. So Yeah. Uh, I guess I meant more not like how would the non-athletes know, know that. I mean, I think there are a lot of people that are body aware. Yoga instructors, I think, are very yes, absolutely. body aware. Absolutely. Yeah, it's I, getting I, that assessment because I, I feel I like think I getting an assessment can will learn te- a lot. Yes, it'll tell you a lot. And, and um, knowing where your deficits are, then you can focus on that area. So I'm not a blank, you know, you need to do just this or just mm. that. It's very joint specific. Yeah. I know some people that are hyper flexible in their hips but stiff in their spine. Right. So maybe the spine yoga positions I mean, are good for them and their hips, maybe they need to do more strengthening. Yeah, I need an right? assessment from you. There I you go, know that. right? I know. <laughs> um, and you brought up the, the protein, like how much, obviously you focus a lot on nutrition. It seems like that's a huge, important aspect for everybody. Um, you brought up the protein. Is there, what about... Because there's all this, like, everything changes all the time. Yes, yes carbs are good nutrition. for you. Yes, yes, carbs are not good yes. for you. Protein, yes. da, da. What, what do you feel like are the most important things to focus on? Because now there's all, like, these keto diets, paleo diet. I don't even know. Sure. That's a big open-ended question. I could talk about that for hours. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so, no, 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 no. That's, that, that's okay. So, let, we'll stick to just tennis, right? Yes. So, carbs are not a bad thing because you need the energy for matches and you need to last, right? So if you look at, say, macronutrients, right, your fat, your carbs, right. and, and your protein, so you definitely need to carb up enough so you're not um, getting drained throughout the match. Obviously, taking some uh, 
some type of food intake throughout the match at the change of ends to keep the glycogen levels high um, because tennis is so demanding of that. Like, do you um, think every changeover they should be... Yeah, a little bit. A it little could just bit. be a little bit so it's not hard to digest. Yeah. It doesn't upset the stomach. Um, and some people like to do it naturally with dates or whatnot. And some people have the goose, you know, in a little packet. Some people like to eat a banana. So I think that's very individual depending on the person digestive-wise. Some people don't like some of those products and other things that they do. So, um, so you do need carbs right so um there are some players that that uh in the past did some episodes of caloric restriction to lose their weight i think to try to get their movement better or reduce stress on their joints and they had a ranking jump so sometimes there is some need for caloric restriction maybe um to change body composition but you do need your carbs um, fats are important for hormones. Uh, I don't want to get too much into detail, but but that is important yeah. too. Uh, and then the protein is your basic building block for rebuilding muscle and building muscle. Mm. And so since we're always training and depleted, it's really important to keep up the protein. Sometimes the younger athletes forget that there's micronutrients and that keeps them healthy. You need all the macronutrients. You can't just eat meat and potatoes or meat and rice you need the micronutrients to be healthy so you don't mm-hmm. get a cold so you recover from injuries the quicker. micronutrients would be the what for example the vitamins and minerals right, that you right, see right, right. And, and ideally you get them naturally and don't have to take supplementation right. i think blood work is part of every athlete's good assessment tool that they do a few times a year because maybe there's some deficits a you few have times a year you would do it yeah, yeah. and th- there's maybe deficits that you have that you don't realize you have and then you can just take that specific uh, so let's say vitamin, you're low in vitamin D, which you need to get tested. You, there's no other way of knowing. Then you can actually take just vitamin D. You don't need to take a multivitamin. You try to get all of it naturally with food, but there's some things you can't. So you try to you know, squeeze that in, right? Yeah. So, um, but obviously certified for athletes because they need to be, because because of drug there's testing, drug it needs to stuff, be yeah. a clean product. And right. so sometimes that's something we have to be really, right. really, really careful. Do you guys do ice baths too? For like yeah, recovery? so there's extensive research. It's kind of changing though. Um, and I wrote an article in some triathlete magazines a, a, a while back. But the research on ice is very good in terms of reducing pain the next day, right? So during a Grand Slam, you play a five-setter. It's good to ice because you're going to be less sore the next day. But actually in training, I try to steer them away from ice baths because that stress you put your body under now allows your body to recover and adapt but if you're icing and taking that stress away, your body doesn't adapt. So there's a time and place for icing. And protein synthesis, the building block after trauma, so after a match, there's micro trauma, right? right? You don't want to take that protein synthesis away. So timing of those are important. So in ideal, this is ideal okay. for a tennis player, going back to recovery. I like this. The first three hours, you wouldn't, let's say it's a best of three set tournament the first three hours you would do your nutrition your hydration your compression boots your massage your and bike you, and your bike <laughs> and you wouldn't thank you and you wouldn't ice those first three hours okay if you can help it that okay. allows your protein synthesis to be maximized okay. and your body to recover and then you could ice if you feel like you're going to be sore if you don't feel like you're going to be sore then it may not be that beneficial actually okay. some of the research is showing so so the staging and the timing of when you do those recovery things is extremely important, overlooked a lot of the time. But the research is all out there with each individual thing. You just have to put them all together oh and goodness. say, when's the timing the best? Yeah. 
So ideally, this is what the research shows, is you're not icing the first three hours. Mm-hmm. Now, there may be a, a, a thing where you're, you played a five-setter. You don't care about, about necessarily building muscle because you're in the middle of a tournament. You're not in training. You just don't want to be beat up the next day. Then it doesn't really matter. Let's get ice okay. as soon as possible yeah. to stop that inflammatory response. We don't care about building muscle during a Grand Slam. We want you to be fresh for the yeah. next match. But after those three hours and you end up feeling a little sore at the end of the day, would you throw them in an ice yeah, bath? Yeah, then you can then do an you ice would, bath yeah. and then you don't impede the healing, healing. of the protein and the hormones yep. that, that kind of help us recover. Okay. Right? Okay. And so some sports are ahead of the curve with some things and then behind in other things. And it's try to bring in all the different things from all the different sports helps. Right? What is tennis ahead of and what is tennis behind? Ooh, in, in just strength and conditioning and recovery maybe. I think we were behind in um, f- not anymore, but you sometimes r- behind in active recovery or even like compression garments and that okay. kind of thing. And then uh, where cycling was really good at that. And then nutritionally... Uh, maybe with the whole protein thing we were slow to the game because that was only for bodybuilders right okay um, and so um, every sport is and some things we do in every sport because we it's tradition well we've always done it that way so we just keep doing it and nobody questions it right you start to question like it what? scientifically I, I, I wrote a blog on this a long time ago and I'm, I'm spacing right oh, now no, but okay. there's there's just a lot of things um, if we're not talking just strength and conditioning if you look at say the major sports baseball really good at stats right tennis was behind mm. for a while now everyone's getting the Catching stats up. right on a big point this person mm. tends to serve here more often we were kind of behind certainly tennis with pitch count baseball is extremely good they keep their pitchers on a strict regimen right of pitch count tennis almost no one counts pitch count like so are you talking about sir like uh, like what you were talking serving, about the amount yes. of serve in the beginning yeah exactly and so if nobody has shoulder issues and they don't lose velocity as the tournament week goes on or as a match goes on maybe it's something you don't need to address but if you're seeing a player lose velocity as the week goes on or lose velocity during a match or they have shoulder issues then pitch count is definitely something you need to look at so mm-hmm. we're behind baseball in that yeah so yeah, it's this is fascinating. You know, we, I could talk about that, just that topic oh for hours. God. I know so. we might have to do a repeat, have you on again. <laughs> but uh, last thing I just want to ask, because I know you're doing all this research and you're always learning and trying to improve. What, what, anything recent that's come out that you're really, really excited about, or anything that you're looking for to to incorporate into your whole routine? Wow, that's a very good question. If you find something that's big, you probably were missing the boat and you've dropped some balls along the way. So it's never at this stage of the game. A you're just thing. missing like very small right. things that you can fine tune. I know. So, I want to rack so your brain. I want to know what you're thinking that's about. That's just tough. <laughs> I mean, I would say more recently is more the wearables of tracking how your body recovers the next day. Okay. There's a lot of subjectivity. I feel good or I don't feel good, Mm -hmm. if you can maybe make those numbers objective, then you've got something you can focus on. Mm So I'm struggling with my recovery based on my wearables. How's your sleep looking? Okay, the numbers show you're not sleeping Mm -hmm. the appropriate amount. So that I think has been kind of a game changer because that affects training, that affects strength and conditioning. Um, Sometimes that's a discussion with coaches of when they train, right? 
he's pretty fatigued and we're training at 9 a.m. He's got to get up at 6. We need to change that because he needs more sleep. Or uh, So that's kind of a team approach, right? Yeah. Everyone's on the same page. So I think the wearables have been a big thing because we're now we're getting objective numbers right. on recovery and fatigue. Neurological fatigue is a big one. Um, so I would say that's probably the one because it, yeah. Yeah, it affects everything. So a lot yeah. of fatigue is actually neurological. The yeah. nervous system starting to... And the wearables would help with that data with that data and then there's even apps this okay there's there's thousands of dollar worth uh, of like say force plates and they 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 measure when you jump how long you're in the air for and you can do repeated bouts and if it tails off like your hang time if it tails off so you, you have a baseline when you're fresh Wait, there's so these plates that you jump on yeah okay and, and so they're usually in research labs right okay so you jump on the plate and let's say the protocol is 20 times, right? And they kind of measure your hang time. And if you're fresh, your 20 jumps should be pretty similar. If you're really fatigued, you start to see either less hang time or a drop off in hang time, those 20 jumps. Well, now there's an app on your phone. I think it's called My Jump, which has actually been correlated with research to be accurate with these force plates, where because it's 240 frames a second, I can film you jumping. And based on the frames per second, it knows how long you're in the air for. Okay. And we can do those repeat jumps, those 20 jumps throughout a week during a slam, let's say. And we can see if you're neurologically fatigued. So when you're neurologically fatigued, that message doesn't get to the muscle quick enough. Mm-hmm. And you don't see quite the same explosiveness. Some of that may be just mus- true muscular fatigue, but some of it's neurological fatigue. We'll say that app on the phone now don't need a special lab you know, with a force plate to know that, that, that costs that, tens yeah. of thousands of dollars. Right. I can just use my phone and say, you're kind of neurologically fatigued. Maybe now if it's a training week, we're not going to do plyometrics today because now it's an injury risk. Oh, we're going to do it. more recovery today. Okay. And so that gives us kind of a direction to go in for that. So you're or, kind of using these as like different yes. testing tools. Or, or we wanted a high volume week to simulate a slam. I want you fatigued at the end of the week. Mm. If you're not fatigued at the end of the week, I didn't work you hard enough. Okay. So now we need to do more volume to make sure you're fatigued. Then the body adapts and now you're fitter and stronger. Yeah. And obviously you need rest after a bout of fatigue, right? So you may do a hard training week and then a slightly less volume week to allow the body to recover. So it's not always about, sometimes you want to induce stress. And right. these wearables kind of help with that, I yeah, guess. Right? Yeah. And technology, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, you said you could talk for hours about these subjects. I Each could talk, topic, I could talk I hours. could talk for you at hours, but I've t- seriously, I appreciate your time. Super generous of you. No I, worries. So fascinating to talk me. to. Yeah, thank you. Awesome, thank you. Thanks once again to Jill Kravis and Wolfgang Oswald, and we'll hear plenty more from Jill over the coming weeks. That's it for the podcast. I'm Peter Mercado. Thanks for listening. This is our first podcast for 2022. Plenty of great tournament action happening in Adelaide and also in Sydney with the ATP Cup and right here in Melbourne at Melbourne Park, the Melbourne Somerset, a 250 event happening all of this week as well. Hope you had a great festive season. Enjoyed the New Year celebrations. The tennis is back. It's great to see here in Australia and we look forward to bringing you plenty of great podcasts and interviews over the coming weeks and months.